Time for another great podcast from ICRT. But first, a message from one of our outstanding partners. Don't forget, more information and fun on the ICRT app or at icrt.com.tw. ICRT, listen with the world. Now open. Texas Roadhouse is bringing Taichung residents its delicious, juicy steaks and barbecue ribs. Located on Shizhong Road, Texas Roadhouse is looking forward to serving up legendary food, legendary service, and legendary fun. 美味的手工鮮切牛排,10月5日登陸台中,德州鮮切牛排台中店,位在西屯區市政路581-6號,傳奇性的美式風味,等你來嘗鮮。We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Ross Darrell Feingold, sitting in for Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio this evening by two first-time guests to Taiwan This Week, Dr. Minyong Chan, who previously served as a legislator and member of the National Security Council. Good evening, Minyong. Good evening, Ross. And Carl Wagner, who advises financial services companies on blockchain technologies and has over 30 years banking experience in greater China. Carl, welcome to the show. Good evening, Ross. Tonight, we'll be discussing a preview of Donald Trump's first trip to China. Taiwan banks, once again accused of not complying with U.S. banking regulations. A ship manufacturer building minesweepers for the Taiwan Navy might sink. And will voters in Jinmen bet on casinos? But we'll begin with presidential travel of Tsai Ing-wen. This weekend, President Tsai begins her eight-day trip to three South Pacific countries that maintain formal diplomatic relations with the Republic of China, the Marshall Islands, Solomon Islands, and Tuvalu. The trip's theme is sustainable Austronesia, working together for a better future 2017. Mignon, you've worked in senior levels of government. What kind of considerations will government officials be thinking about in planning this kind of trip? Mm-hmm. I think just as any country, to maintain a formal diplomatic ally is uh, quite an important issue. And then, of course, for Taiwan to visit our diplomatic allies, what we have in mind is to sustain the goodwill friendship by firstly looking into each size needs and whether we can supply that needs. For example, the development aids that Taiwan have with our diplomatic allies, economically assessing projects' uh, success, and what are the, some of the bottlenecks, etc. So I think Tsai's uh, uh, visit to our diplomatic allies in South Pacific Islands will be an important one. What kind of reaction would we expect from uh, the public here in Taiwan? So, you know, is the is the public supportive of these kinds of trips? Because it does cost the taxpayer a lot of money to fly mm-hmm. to these locations, especially places as remote as these islands. Uh, and uh, a large delegation of officials and business people will accompany the president. How does how does the public look at it? And how do we measure the public reaction? Mm-hmm. Well, general public of course, have short, mid, and long-term interest. For the general public, uh, on the business community level, uh, which usually go along with the mission, that they will look for business opportunities. If they are matching the development course of the country, of course, so much the better. Uh, For general public, of course, this is a tricky time when cross-trade have somewhat tense relations, uneasy, easy 
for uh, the talk about diplomatic allies and whether we're going to lose one or two. Some are more sarcastic than others, but generally speaking, to maintain diplomatic good relations with our allies is a fundamental thing for any country. And Carl, as a business leader, when, when governments ask companies to participate in, in, in these kinds of uh, diplomacy and, and participate in aid programs, uh, what kind of return are business leaders looking for? Is, are they going to participate simply because it maintains good relations with the government, uh, or do they actually see business opportunity, especially in remote locations like this? I mean, it probably really depends on, on what type of business you're in, right? I mean, if you're talking about in manufacturing or something, um, you know, or, or, in, or in the financial side. I mean, obviously, yes, keeping good relations with, uh, you know, the, the, the government uh, contacts as well as the, the government contacts in, in, in that new lo- the other location is very important and helps promote business. From a finance side, you know, if their big projects signed off, have, being a banker in that same room or in that same delegation can be quite uh, quite helpful because you're you're hearing what's going on. You can give advice and and be the first one to, to help on on the financing side. So it is useful, but again, you have to make sure that again the business you're working with is is one that you want to finance the credit side, and and also make sure that it's a, it's a business that you want to support. But it's often it's a good chance for for building a portfolio in a, in a new location. That's a good point, though. Uh, I was looking at the older media reports from when President Ma visited these countries, and a gift of mobile phones was made from a Taiwan company that participated in the trip. And the media pointed out to the government officials, uh, they don't have a 3G network in this country. And the government officials said, well, the phones can still take good photos, even if they can't be used as, as phones. So, uh, Ming-Yong, I mean, that raises the question, again, about you know, the, the, what can Taiwan achieve from the, from the trip other than uh, if you say the goal is simply to make sure that these countries continue to support Taiwan in the international space because opportunities for business might be limited. Is that really what the goal here is? For South Pacific Islands nations, actually, there are a lot of uh, coherent uh, collaborative projects, including fish products, including how do we do the uh, emergency uh, alert system, uh, typhoon, um, and then also training of skills. So actually, there's a whole list of collaborative projects that we will be able to uh, do with them. Well, let's hope it works out successfully, and uh, I'm sure we'll be following this next week when Tsai is still overseas. Moving on, but still on the topic of presidential travel, next month Donald Trump will visit China as part of a five-country Asian tour. Earlier this week, following the conclusion of the 19th Party Congress in Beijing, uh, President Trump sent a congratulatory tweet to Xi Jinping. And now there's speculation that the U.S. and China will sign a fourth communique that could cover the country's respective positions on Taiwan. As our listeners know, the communiques refer to U.S. acknowledgement of the Chinese position, but does not accept it. Carl, how are people in China looking at the potential visit of Donald Trump? Well, I guess the first thing you could say is that uh, Donald Trump's tweet can't be seen in China because he did. They don't have Twitter, right? So that's the, that's the first thing. But of course, I'm sure they heard about it. I mean, in general, um, China has 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 watched um, you know Trump and and uh, you know the the way he's 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 led the U.S. Um, you know quite carefully. Uh, I think that um, they're uh, in. 
Xi Jinping and, and the 19th Party Congress has shown that, again, he's consolidating power and, and continuing to, to want to build China to be uh, a greater force in, in, in the global marketplace. Um, so I think it's, it's really it's going to be interesting because they really feel and, and that it's a conversation among equals. And uh, they're going to be talking to, to, to Trump on, on that basis, whether it's trade, whether it's, um, it's finance. I mean, there's a lot of things that uh, China is now uh, rising up and, and becoming more powerful. And it's an opportunity to, to talk to the U.S. directly one-to-one. And you know, what, what would the Taiwan government be thinking about when the U.S. leader meets the Chinese leader? What, what are their main concerns? Well, the main concern, of course, is that uh, um, the bilateral relationship, whether and to what extent will affect the U.S.-Taiwan relations as well as the cross-trade relations. So would a fourth communique be of concern to Taiwan? Well, it depends on the content of the communique. Uh, Even if there is a fourth uh, communique, fourth coming very soon, we didn't know about how soon because just as Kissinger in Shanghai communicate, nobody knows what's happened, even within the U.S. Uh, society, uh, with Kissinger's shuttle diplomacy for about nearly two years, etc. Now, uh, even if there is a false communique, I believe it was the two great powers in the world that the content of which should be very well thought out, very well orchestrated to the extent that will maintain regional stability. So no, no change likely in how the U.S. characterizes its relationship with Taiwan? Because we know what the Chinese position will be, right? They'll, they'll, they'll insist that if there's a communique that it will have their position stated very clearly on, on Taiwan. I think President Trump uh, in many ways uh, could uh, possibly uh, put up uh, quite a lot of innovative approach, but we're not quite sure how Taiwan will be affected. Mm-hmm. And Carla, what does the business community uh, look at when, when you know, the business community in China, say American businesses in, in, in the context of the trilateral relationship, especially uh, when there's a high-level summit, presidential summit, and the Taiwan question might come up, and your companies, uh, American companies, have business operations in both places. You know, what kind of role does business play? Well, I mean, I think businesses have accepted the the challenge of you know wanting to do business in Taiwan for all the advantages of doing business in Taiwan IP protection and all that sort of thing and but also the the huge market in China that that no one can ignore right so that's been a balance that uh, you know any business American business has have been having to manage for 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 many years I think some of the uh, the market in China is, is getting bigger and bigger but some of the worries about IP protection are even more worrisome. Um, now that um, technologically China is getting more advanced, so it, it's uh, from the technology side, it's it's something to to you can there's a dichotomy between China and, and doing business China and doing it in Taiwan, but you have to be able to, to balance both and hiring more and more people that have the ability to look at both sides is very important because you, you just can't make the decision from the U.S. So the decision has to be made from from Asia from people on the ground. Does that mean uh, it might yet come true, though, because there's always speculation about Donald Trump and his transactional approach to policymaking, if China would make commitments on 
for example, IP protection or market access or North Korea? Uh, would Trump be more flexible on other issues such as sovereignty disputes, whether it's Taiwan, South China Sea? That, that's a hard question. Again, I think we're we're all uh, we're all watching every day to see the the latest news from from Trump and and uh, you know what he's saying and and what his latest tweet is. So it's it's hard, very hard to predict. But Mignon, whatever happens at, at the meeting between Trump and Xi, it is standard procedure that high level U.S. officials afterwards would meet with Taiwan and and explain to Taiwan what transpired. And uh, is that substantive or uh, is the U.S. simply saying, oh, don't worry, we're still your friend, no matter what the two presidents said at their summit meeting in Beijing? I believe the U.S. over time uh, have been very substantive uh, in communicating and then usually uh, sometimes suggest some um, different concrete options for us to consider. So the Taiwan side should not be concerned about what might be said by the U.S. side or even the Chinese side at these meetings since they happen once or twice a year anyway. Well, from the past experience, uh, you know, it's just different presence has different characteristics how to carry uh, international relations forward. Mm. I think we should probably leave it there since you've described Donald Trump as having different characteristics. And that was very diplomatic, Min Young. <laughs> and uh, the Financial Supervisory Commission Chairman Wellington Koo admitted to the Legislative UN that the New York branch of Mega International Commercial Bank and Huanan Bank failed to pass examinations by the New York State Banking Regulator. This comes a year after Mega Bank received a record $180 million fine for money laundering violations in its New York branch. And as Mr. Ku knows, the fallout from the mega scandal cost one of his predecessors their jobs. So, Carl, as a banker of many years' experience in this part of the world, I'll just throw it over to you. What is the issue with Taiwan companies or Taiwan banks and anti-money laundering shortcomings, especially in their overseas branches? Well, I wouldn't say it's just Taiwan banks, right? A lot of international banks have also been fined for 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 you know money laundering and, and other challenges from 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 the U.S. Uh, U.S. authorities and whether it's New York State or you know different different governments, um, different government entities in the U.S. It's a big challenge, right? If you're running a big bank, um, the first challenge is systems, right? Even though the you you may want to do the right thing, you have ten literally tens of thousands of systems that are not linked together. And sometimes that process of managing that information, you know, something gets lost or something gets misconstrued, and and very often it's it's not a it's a, just a mistake. It's an honest mistake that something was was carried on or a transaction wasn't checked, and and that's why a lot of the the, the biggest growth in, in banking now is actually in the compliance area of banking. And if, if you want a job in banking, that's where you go. And in banking is is, is compliance, right? Because the compliance is getting harder and harder. As Jamie Dimon said, I mean, the bankers are being asked to be more and more policemen, right? So before they had all this data, but they didn't have to manage it in the way they have to now. Right now, they have to be able to analyze it real time, stop transactions, and, and it's not that easy. So I think it's it's all banks, and a lot of banks are changing their their business and their business lines because one hundred eighty million dollar fine. If you do a business and, and it's a good business, it's making five or ten million dollars a year. It's a solid, but you wipe out ten years of of of, of profit. 
and the reputational you know risk and so a lot of banks are getting out of businesses that were more paper based or 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 had a an aspect of of money laundering that was that was worrisome but the transactions that were done in the New York branches of these two banks, Mega and, and Huanan, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it is mostly trade finance. Uh, they're, they're not trading complex financial products with institutional counterparties. So, yes, it is paper-based, but uh, the clients are mostly Taiwanese companies and individuals. Shouldn't it be relatively easy to track the transactions and address the concerns that the regulators had identified? Well, again, if, if it's it's hard to say. Sometimes it's it's a honest mistake. Sometimes it's a it's a purposeful mistake, right? And uh, again, if, if there's a in trade finance, you have you know many many documents, a, a stack of documents, and letter of credit could be an inch high, right? And multiple shipments and trend shipments, and it, it, it can get quite complicated. So it's really who's checking the documents? Are they doing the right job? And and you have examples. Um, what was it? The the one example that there was a a, a hacker tried to get into um, and and steal I guess like a couple hundred million dollars from Bank of, of Bangladesh and, and a an employee at Deutsche Bank just noticed one misspelling on one word and happened to to he could have let it go everything was fine but he noticed that and it asked him to query a little bit farther and discovered a hacker had come in into in into the system so I mean it really takes it's it's a lot of this stuff is not is not automated. Right, it's it's manual, and so it's training. I think a lot of the, uh, the the banks are spending a lot of time training their people. Right, they need to know what to do and when to flag it, and not be afraid to flag things. Mm. That's a good point about being afraid or uh, to flag something. I mean, you know, and you've worked both in government as well as the private sector at very senior levels, the board level here in Taiwan. Is is there a a corporate culture issue uh, that prevents employees from? flagging and identifying and, and escalating something that might be problematic? Is, is that something that uh, Taiwan organizations have a challenge with? Well, I'm not quite sure each bank's uh, corporate governance uh, in this regard, but uh, certainly uh, for the standard chart banks that I serve for quite many years, uh, we've always emphasized the good corporate governance. On the one hand, it's a risk assessment, uh, and then to put up a fine regulatory framework for all employees to comprehend. Secondly, is to the comprehension and compliance level that we are talking about. It is regrettable for for this case to see uh, a series of Taiwanese bank uh, occurring, uh, recurring and in violation of the U.S. banking law. And I think uh, in this regard, I just have a few comments. On the one hand, uh, the harmonization of regulation is very important. Whether we learn from the mega bank experience and fully in compliance with the U.S. bank, since we want to operate in the U.S. environment. And then secondly, also there is a level of assessment of risk level and whether the senior manager or the board members are fully understand when each and every transaction that the board has to have a severe oversight uh, and then to make sure that the risk level there on the one hand on the national security side on the other hand for the corporate sort of market share competition side so they have to have a fine balance in order to get a very healthy banking system
Well, uh, is the way to achieve that, though, by uh, uh, firing everyone? So what happened after Mega, a lot of the officials at Mega, including at the board level, lose their jobs. The chairman of the Financial Supervisory Commission loses his job. It's very similar to when there's, uh, say, a typhoon or natural disaster, blackouts, uh, government officials who have oversight of these areas. Instead of staying to fix the problem, they resign. And then someone new comes in who really wasn't uh, there and isn't familiar with what happened, has to try and clean up the mess. So uh, is the solution to this problem to keep firing government officials, uh, or should we give them a chance to try and work out the problem? Well, very good question. Certainly, I don't think the quick fix just for the sake of easing the public anger is a long-term solution. And then Taiwan seems to have this uh, uh, illusion of, you know, accountability in the short term. Yes, I'm responsible. Somebody has to get out because a mistake is there. However, if the mistakes are not seriously dealt with, it will recur again and again. I'll give you a chance to talk a little bit about blockchain, Carl. Would blockchain technologies address these issues, especially for a Taiwan bank operating overseas in markets where maybe uh, the Taiwan institution is not as familiar with language, regulation, etc.? I mean, you're talking about blockchain or distributed ledger technologies, which is, is right now is, is it's an infancy, right? It's, it's right now blockchain and distributed ledger is sort of the internet in 1992, Right, so 1992, we never knew that Uber would come from from that first TCIP system. So we're still in the beginning, and, and a lot of a uh, lot of learning on on blockchain and DLT. But one of the advantages of having a distributed ledger would be that multiple divisions of a bank or banks could share, basically share a spreadsheet. Share a spreadsheet. Of course, you can't see everything, but just the things that where you work together. But that kind of transparency will be huge in helping um, reporting um, and, and being able to, to speed transactions. And one of the things that the, the, the actually regulators are, are looking forward to this is that a regulator would be able to have a node and be able to see right now in every, every day, every bank at the end of the day, end of the week, end of the month has to do regulatory reports and there's more and more every day and more, more and more every year. And then when the regulators ask a question, they say, oh, give us the information on XYZ company. And, and really, the, you should say, well, I gave you all the information already. Why are you asking me again? Of course, the regulator asks. You have to say, yes, of course, I'm here to help you. And you dig it up all again and, and in different format. But with a distributed ledger, a, a regulator could have a node and actually see transactions live time. So, A, there wouldn't be any regulatory reporting because they would be a participant in that transaction. So it could it become very powerful for the regulators to, to watch things, to monitor. Um, of course, they only should get access to what they should see as, as part of their uh, regulatory framework. But it is an opportunity, and that's one of the big reasons that banks are actually interested in blockchain and DLT is because the cost of compliance is going up every year. And banking banking services, they're getting to ask to do more, they're getting asked to charge less, and the cost of compliance is going up. So if there's anything that could help reduce that compliance cost, 
by sharing data with the regulators, it would be a huge benefit for the banking system. Carl, given Taiwan companies' ability to implement technology, uh, can some of the Taiwan banks be at the forefront to implement the technologies you discussed? Taiwan did very well. If you talk about blockchain and, and AI and robotics, are really the fourth industrial revolution, right? Taiwan did very well in the third industrial revolution, Silicon Valley and Shinju and all that. So again, it, it could be a tremendous opportunity for Taiwan to, to also um, get ahead um, using this new technology. And with that, we'll have to take a short break, but we'll be back after these commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week. We're going to continue with some banking-related conversation by talking about the growing Qingfu mine-sweeping procurement scandal. State-run First Financial yesterday refused to say whether its chairman will be resigning as a result of this scandal, uh, which might cause the bank and the other lenders in the consortium to lose hundreds of millions of U.S. dollars. Qingfu was awarded a contract by the Ministry of National Defense to build six sweep minesweepers for the Taiwan Navy two years ago, uh, but now it looks like a default is likely. Carl, what is the due diligence considerations with the... Uh, banks that lent the money, and, and why are we now finding out that the minesweeper uh, contractor did not have all the required documentation in place? Again, I talked about earlier, I mean, doing due diligence, risk assessment is the key part of banking, right? And so that's banks are there to make money, but actually, they're, actually the, the biggest part of banks is not to lose money. Right, the percentages they make. You make one percent on loan, two percent on loan, and if you lose a hundred million dollars, you know, in a, in a bad loan, there's a lot of loans, billions of dollars of loans to get back that, you know, that 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 one loss. So risk assessment is 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 very important. Um, understanding your customers, know your customer policies, um, and and also being able to track. And, and watch, especially on, on a large project, see first, do they have all the documentation at the beginning, but also make sure that as the process going, as the manufacturing going, they're following the regulations, they're continuing to build, right? And so whether it's trade finance or manufacturing, really knowing your customer is, is, is key, and, and that's something that's, you know, it's a cha- it can be a challenge for a bank sometimes when it's something's done overseas, it's done remotely, but um, it, it's really part of banking. That relationship manager is, is a key point. You need to know what's going on with your customer because it's the bank's money out there. Is, are the considerations any different when it's uh, a defense procurement-related loan? Interesting thought. Maybe there is something, and I hadn't thought about this, maybe there is something about you know, national security. Maybe there is some aspects that the bank may not be able to see if it's, if it's a defense contractor. Maybe there's security concerns. I never thought of that. Maybe that might make it a little bit more difficult. Hmm. Uh, Mignon, will, will this scandal, though, have any impact on uh, President Tsai's commitment to further develop a local defense industry, which covers more than just shipbuilding? It, obviously, it covers other types of defense technology. And I think a lot of foreign observers for a long time had, had been calling on Taiwan, not just to make more uh, investment in defense, but to help build a local 
defense industry and not just procure from the United States or a few other countries. Uh, would, would this kind of uh, event have any impact on the long-term plans to build a local defense industry? I think this case perhaps will be a very good uh, opportunity for our government as well as industry to tidy up our loose string and then make sure that project finance and the due process of reporting on each and every chain of uh, command is uh, most essential for Taiwan to have continued credibility in the international procurement uh, schemes. This story is getting a lot of news, not just in Taiwan, but now internationally, because it does involve defense procurement, and it does involve a lot of money. Would the uh, banks who do business, foreign banks who do business with these Taiwanese banks, be looking at this, and would it cause them to be cautious about uh, doing business with these Taiwanese banks? Um, I would say, I mean, a lot of banks and some of the biggest banks in the world over the last, say, 10 years or so have all had um, little missteps or big missteps here and there, whether it's in compliance, whether it's in bad loans. So I don't think it really affects the um, uh, the the assessment of, of doing business with another bank. Now, if it brings, again, if Standard & Poor's or Moody's drops the rating of that bank, then that's the consideration. So for lending or doing business with that bank, the, the credit rating is, is the, the bigger thing, and that's actually assessed by a third party. But then there are certain parameters. A bank can only do X amount of, 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 of business with a bank rated at a certain level. So if the, if the, um, if the credit rating changes, and, and that, then that could affect it. But I think everyone, all the bankers know that there are mistakes. Mistakes are made, and, and that's part of banking. But um, so I, think I, I like how you characterize a five hundred million dollar loss as a little step, a little misstep. <laughs> well, it depends. I mean, and well, look at I mean, some of the, the the biggest fines in the world were done by some of the biggest banks in the world, and they still made money sometimes, right? So it's a uh, there's banking is a is a business of 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 big bets sometimes. Um, and again, we don't know if there's complete loss. There's also can also be recovery, right? You say the big number at the beginning. There could be some recovery as well, and and that's part of that process. And how would how would uh, banks recover in the context of this kind of transaction? There, I'm, I'm not sure how how it would be, but in, in very often there there is something there they can go recover or resell, um, you know, and 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 uh, you know put a lien on some um, stuff to to find out what is the value. So again, maybe the recovery is only. Could be only ten, twenty, thirty percent, but it's usually not the the big number at the very beginning. And on that note, we'll move on to another gamble, which is the bet on casinos in Jinmen tomorrow. The voters of Jinmen will vote in a referendum to approve integrated resorts with casino gaming, similar to the Singapore model. One of the interesting things that a lot of the public and voters don't know is that the law that authorizes this referendum uh, doesn't require a majority of voters to turn out. The vote will pass if only a majority of those who show up vote. So both sides now are trying to encourage the their supporters to show up tomorrow in Jinmen and vote. Uh, Mignon, the governments, both under the Kuomintang and the DPP, ha- haven't taken uh, very enthusiastic positions in favor of casinos in Taiwan or the offshore islands. What, what are some of the concerns about allowing casinos in Taiwan from a political perspective? Because we have reduced a lot of uh, cross-strait uh, exchange, including tourists, into Jinmen, and maybe the, you know, Local people are keenly aware of the change of atmosphere and then thinking in terms of what are the 
if not best, second best alternative that can stimulate local economy. Thereby, uh, uh, the opposition side uh, may feel that uh, uh, that could uh, create a lot of negative impacts on social uh, morale, etc. But if we take a look on the Singapore case, if a government planning board could think in advance about key issues of concern on many fronts, then when they uh, come up with a resolution, that will be a very comprehensive blueprint rather than, you know, uh, dwell on the, the voters' turnout or anything. They should generate the public understanding, generate the key issues of concern debate, and then trying to resolve it with a good, comprehensive policy. Well, as you know, the concerns are the typical ones. Uh, It's going to increase crime. Uh, There'll be environmental damage where the facilities are built. Uh, It leads to other industries such as prostitution, which are often associated with casinos. Uh, But as you say, uh, planning can be done for these things, and there's certainly best practices from other locations uh, such as Singapore. Uh, to follow, uh, but but it still seems very difficult for government leaders to make that commitment to say that we see this as s- stimulating the economy, and thus we can manage these risks. Uh, can the risks be managed? I believe yes. If we uh, put our mind and then the heart into it, addressing the different interests from all sides. Carl, based on your knowledge of the Chinese market, would Chinese consumers be interested in visiting this facility? I, I don't see why not, right? I mean, it's it's much easier to go to Macau or Jinmen than, than to go to Las Vegas, right? And it, it's, a, it's a market. They can speak Chinese. Um, you know, it, it's familiar. They can, they can eat good, good food. And, uh, and it's a lot closer, right? So, again, maybe it wouldn't be as many of the high rollers. Maybe the high rollers are still going to get their private planes to uh, and, and comp to, to go to Vegas. But uh, the, the next level of, of uh, people that want to gamble, it's China. There's volume. There's a lot of people there. Given the likelihood that Taiwan companies would need to partner with foreign investors to build these facilities, does it create a strategic victory for Taiwan to build these facilities? Yeah, I mean, you look at look at the in in, in Singapore other locations, right? The experts in this industry are are not actually based in most of them are not based in Asia; they're based out of the U.S. and and uh, so it's an opportunity, I think, for for foreign companies, whether you know in in construction, in design, in financing. Um, to help out because it, it is a different type of business. It's a specific type of business. And even on, on the, the banking side, there are people that manage that specific portfolio because it is different. I mean, you know, I have to return to politics, though, because uh, if the referendum were to pass despite a low turnout, is this going to open up the conversation about the referendum law that applies to other issues uh, separate from the offshore islands development. So there is a movement right now to change the referendum law, which has a very high bar for the number of people who have to support it in order to hold the referendum and then pass the referendum. It's linked to the number of eligible voters. Uh, If tomorrow's Jinmen referendum were to pass with only a small number of voters, because it doesn't require a majority of voters to turn out. Uh, is that going to create more interest in changing the referendum law and put pressure on the government to support it? Well, for the referendum law, of course, we have to examine the scope of coverage on issues. There are very uh, uh, 
fundamental national issue. There are local issues that requires local people. There are the taxpayers to think about. So I think, of course,、uh, the Kimmen issue require low threshold for referendum, and then、uh, that does not necessarily apply to the broader issue of national interest. Well, we'll certainly、uh, be following this tomorrow, and probably be talking about the result next week. But before we go, we're going to venture into the world of time travel. Netizens recently launched an online petition on the government's platform to change Taiwan's time zone to be the same as Japan and South Korea, and obtained enough signatures to require an official government response, which is expected in mid-December. The petition cited a desire to remind Chinese and foreign tourists that Taiwan is not part of China, and in the petitioners also claim it will give Taiwan additional sunlight every day. Air transportation regulators and industry officials are already worried about the cost of compliance if this change was to be implemented. Carl, change the time zone or not?、Um, I, I think it's a it's 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 a lot of work for probably a limited amount of benefit. Right, personally, I think because if you change it, I mean, you're talking about you know air traffic controllers, you're talking about you know banking. I mean, all the the all the systems that have been set for one time zone now have to be reset,、um, and and that could be a, a lot of costs that that people aren't even thinking about. They think it's easy as just changing your clock at home, but all the systems have to change. I mean, even in, when we see one of the biggest things. As you build a system, is the calendar right? A trading, a trading system, or whatever. It's the calendar, right? So the calendar years ahead has to match all the the time zones and the the holidays of of every country around the world. And it, it's probably going to cause a lot of confusion before it actually gets. If if it does change, it's going to cause a lot of confusion before it runs smoothly. I mean, Yon, you served as a legislator. If a legislator starts receiving phone calls from young netizens saying support the time zone change, what would a legislator be telling their voters on this issue? A comprehensive assessment is required, I would say, to the voters or my constituency.、Uh, basically,、uh, at this particular juncture, it is a non-essential issue in terms of policy priority, and legislators should have the courage to rank their priority and then convey to their constituency. So the best answer is to say to the constituents, "There's no time to change the time zone." <laughs> <laughs> And as Bob Dylan sings, "The times they are a changing." That's where we'll leave it this week here on Taiwan This Week. I've been joined in the studio today by Dr. Mingyong Chang. Good night, Mingyong. Thank you. Good night. And Carl Wagner. Good night to you, Carl. Good night. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Ross Darrell Feingold, sitting in for Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps, where you can get access to all of our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at eight thirty for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM One Hundred.